Hello, and welcome to Declarations, the human rights podcast run out of the Centre of Governance and Human Rights, CGHR for short, here at the University of Cambridge. I'm Sarah Mohammed, and I'm a PhD student in Politics and International Studies here at the University of Cambridge. And I'm Matt Mahmoudi, and I'm a PhD student at the Centre of Development Studies, and we're your hosts for this season of Declarations, the human rights podcast. With every episode, we'll be exploring contemporary debates about politics and human rights with the people who study them, the people who fight for them, both here in the UK and around the world. Today we're talking about occupation, refugee rights, and the status of Palestine. Are there systematic ways to remedy human rights abuses against an occupied people? How has human rights language been used to facilitate occupation? And what can be done? Joining us today are two esteemed guests who have valuable insights on this challenging topic. Dr. Ruba Saleh is a reader in gender studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies. Her research interests and writing cover transnational migration and gender across Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa, the Palestine question, and refugees. Odette Murray is a fellow in law at Murray Edwards College here at the University of Cambridge. She has taught the law of armed conflict and international criminal law and published on issues including state responsibility in international law and the prosecution of private military contractors. Thank you all for joining us today. And we've got with us our regular panelists, Niusha Bastani, Arindrajit Basu, and Michael Barton. Welcome to the show. So Palestine has been in the news a lot lately, and there's a lot going on that we want to get to, but we thought we would start the episode with something more local. So last month, Dr. Salih, you were set to chair a panel about BDS at Cambridge. Um, that was being held with the co-founder of the BDS movement. On the day of the event, officials from Cambridge University threatened to cancel the event if the chair was not replaced by the university's quote-unquote choice of a neutral chair, who happened to be the director of the university's communications team. A letter has been penned in response um, with hundreds of signatures from students and academics um, criticizing the university for their heavy-handed censorship and calling the move unfair. So some have linked this to the implementation of the PREVENT program, um, which is part of the UK government's counterinsurgency program that's meant to ostensibly prevent extremism in the country. And this whole incident at Cambridge really sparked the debate about whether PREVENT policies and their implementation targets Palestine-related activism or whether the university is doing that regardless of PREVENT. Either way, we really wanted to hear your thoughts about your own experience of how this went down and also its implications for international activism and solidarity with Palestinian rights. Thank you for asking that question. Um, yeah, I mean, you you have raised a very important issue. I was um, banned from my role as chair and I was very much taken aback because it was the first time in my career as an academic uh, that something like that happened to me. Um, the first reaction was to wonder, because <clears throat> um, I didn't know that uh, this was not the unique, and I, it wasn't an isolated case. It had happened the day before at the London School of Economics, and uh, I was told that um, something similar had happened in a university in the north of England. Uh, but I didn't know that, so the first reaction was uh, really to feel very victimized about as an individual on a personal um, basis. And um, uh, my second thought was uh, around why um, was my position, by virtue of what was I deemed not um, enough um, fit for the role. I have chaired many events. <laughs> I have chaired many academic and uh, academic slash activist events. 
and uh, I have my political positions, I have my biographical positions, I have my research interests, but that does not in any way make me an illiberal chair, um, especially as I come from a field, gender studies, where issues of positionality and making clear that the way you inhabit um, a, a, a topic, um, your biographical, personal, political you know, positions uh, and passions for it uh, have always to be disclosed and are part and parcel of the way in which you engage in your research as a scholar with, um, with it. And so um, I thought it was a very problematic uh, move and request and I also was a bit um, taken aback by the fact that, yes, my presence in the panel would have been accepted, but not as a chair. And so I, I refused to act in the panel and to speak in the panel because I was asked to be a chair. And that was um, my statement that you could have positions, you could have views. The, new, the notion of neutrality is absolutely anachronistic. I think in the social sciences we have been, we have abandoned the idea a long time ago that um, there is an objective truth out there that is represented objectively. Uh, we have, you know, uh, criteria and methodologies to tackle with, uh, uh, to tackle our positions and to um, and to still respect and be within the realm of the discipline criteria for judging validity. So um, um, yeah, so I, I think this is a very problematic uh, step that was taken by the university. And um, on this, on on another aspect that I think would be worth mentioning here is the gender and. Uh, sort of the racializing dynamic and profiling. Um, I, I would assume that the University of Cambridge didn't check my publications or my um, scholarship or didn't read my political statements or I don't, I actually don't consider myself an activist, not because I don't want to, but simply, as I say, a lot of the times, because I think the, being an activist requires a lot of time and effort. And um, so what I try to do is to try and be um, as much as I can accountable in my scholarship towards the people and the communities I work with. And this is political. There is no research that is not political. So I wonder also about the process uh, in which this happened. I mean, do, do they assume that by being Palestinian, by being brown, by being a woman, I'm not um, solid enough to tackle an, an, uh, um, a debate? Is it because uh, they've checked my profile, in which case I would be also very worried? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, is it that they checked my profile and my uh, activities uh, in a way that they wouldn't do if it was someone else? Mm. Uh, how do they, you know, how do they uh, consider, what are the criteria for defining neutrality? Mm. Um, and I think this is part of a wider atmosphere of McCarthyism that is shaping universities in the UK, higher, higher education, um, through a very, um, um, kind of double standard kind of um, approach. Uh, and so I know that there are many, many guests that come and speak about Israel, but they are not as checked or um, filtered or um, censored as uh, as we are. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, I, I, I was really shocked about, for example, a month ago, I think it was then um, the Ministry of um, education asked to all vice chancellors in the UK to provide the names and the syllabuses of all staff teaching Brexit related issues. And I think this is a very dangerous um, atmosphere that we need to counteract in all possible ways. 
Thank you for your reply. I think one thing that you mentioned that's really important is this question of neutrality. And of course, anything that's political is not neutral. And even international law, of course, is not neutral on the question of Palestine. So that's the next thing we wanted to talk about. I'm wondering, Odette, if you can speak a bit about um, where international law stands on the question of Palestine, especially in regards to occupation, um, refugee rights, like the right of return and the status of Palestine more broadly. How international law applies in the situation of Palestine is um, contested, Um, but I think there are at least some authoritative statements we have from international courts and UN bodies that um, we can point to in terms of um, the situation. So uh, it's clear, for example, from the International Court of Justice's opinion in 2004 on the um, construction of the wall in the occupied Palestinian territories, for example, that the West Bank and East Jerusalem and Gaza at that time were all considered occupied territory. And that's important because if Israel is in occupation of the Palestinian territories, that creates for it certain obligations under the law of armed conflict, specifically under the fourth Geneva Convention and the first additional protocol, um, and also obligations under customary international law as occupying power. That has been complicated a little bit in more recent years through um, Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, by which Israel claimed it is no longer in occupation of Gaza. Um, That position has not been generally accepted um, by the international community. So, um, for example, in the UN Human Rights Committee's um, Goldstone Report in 2009, and again in its report on the 2014 Gaza conflict, the Human Rights Committee has consistently taken the position that while there are no longer boots on the ground, as it were, in Gaza, the degree of control that Israel continues to exercise over airspace and borders and currency and fuel and food and medical supplies and hospitals and so forth within Gaza means that it is still treated as occupied territory and therefore its obligations as occupier um, to ensure public safety and civil society within Gaza uh, remain. Though, of course, Israel takes the opposite position. Um, The Israeli uh, Supreme Court, sitting as the High Court in some judgments, has also taken the view, consistent with the government's position, that Israel is no longer the occupying power. But that said, the courts in Israel have continued to say that Israel has certain obligations towards the inhabitants of Gaza, regardless of whether or not it's the occupying power, due to the conduct of hostilities between warring parties um, and general obligations towards civilians in that context. Um, That sort of gives us a starting point to say that Israel does have some obligations towards um, people in the West Bank and Gaza. But I suppose the question is how fit for purpose still is the law on occupation? So this goes back to sort of um, the 1907 Hague regulations. And so we have this sort of longstanding idea of um, what an occupying power is, but it's always considered to be a temporary situation. Mm -hmm. So it's the idea that a hostile force takes over territory for a certain amount of time and its obligations under the Hague regulations are not to interfere with the laws in force in that territory. So it's to be a temporary sovereign for the purposes of some final solution as whether it's a peace settlement or withdrawal. Mm -hmm. Um, That law increasingly appears unfit for purpose in relation to prolonged occupations. This is obviously not a problem just in um, the occupied Palestinian territories, but it's also a problem, for example, in Iraq or in um, 
the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus and so forth. So you have these situations where you have a foreign power exercising control over territory for a considerable period. Um, and the question becomes, well, does it just maintain the status quo, right? In, in concert with, say, local authorities, does it just continue to things bubble along as they are? Or at some point, do you start to limit the right of self-determination of the people of that territory to achieve progress and economic development and so forth? Um, and this is where um, a number of international lawyers would advocate the parallel application of human rights law in addition to what we call the law of armed conflict or international humanitarian law. So obligations under human rights law tend to be more extensive, what we call positive obligations to do something for the welfare of the people in terms of education and progress and rule of law and so forth. Um, But again, there are disagreements about the application of human rights law in um, occupied territory. Um, The basic test is you owe human rights obligations to your own people, right? So persons subject to your jurisdiction and in your own territory. So the question becomes, do you owe those obligations to people outside your own territory and your jurisdiction? Mm. Um, Now, again, the International Court of Justice has held um, in relation to the occupied Palestinian territories that Israel does owe human rights obligations in parallel to um, its law of armed conflict obligations in occupied territory. So by by occupying that territory, you do bring it under your jurisdiction for the purposes of human rights law. Um, but famously, this sort of combination of international humanitarian law and human rights law in occupied territory is not well delineated. So um, I think it's important to remember that the Palestinian Authority and maybe others with some form of authority in Gaza, such as Hamas, do also owe, maybe in theory, human rights obligations to those citizens. And sometimes the question is, how do you balance um, the obligations of the occupying power against the local authorities? In the end, citizens' rights fall through the gap because no one says they're responsible for education or hospitals, um, depending on the degree of control they exercise. Um, that's sort of just touching the surface of a lot of bigger issues. As someone who doesn't have a background in law, that to me is incredibly interesting because I think of rights, claims, uh, and cr- creating obligations is also entrenching one in like systems of power. So you have to create when you create an obligation, for example, for um, an occupying force. Um, that has responsibilities to you that also enmeshes you in a relationship with that occupying power. So I'm, I'm assuming that that must make really interesting and complicated relational dynamics between people who are neither citizens nor even really subjects, but have obligations or, or can make claims on the Israeli state. Like, how, how do you tease, tease out that kind of relationship? And is that a fault of human rights that it requires you to make claims upon this force that is occupying you, for example? Yeah, that's a really uh, good question because uh, the status of occupation creates this weird triangulation between the occupied population, the occupying force, and then also the ousted government, right? So the the sovereign that should otherwise um, be providing rights to its own citizens. And there's this tension, I guess, in the the law traditionally um, that would probably, uh, on a conservative view, favour the rights of the ousted governments. The idea is the occupying force is just supposed to maintain the status quo for such time as the ousted power, you know, regains its territory and the hostilities come to an end. But when you have a situation where the hostilities 
have not come to an end. Um, the argument is that then the occupying power has to have more of a regard to the needs of the occupied citizens than it does to the ousted authority. Um, but again, this is um, a difficult area because we don't have a lot of clear written law on on this relationship where how much of human rights obligations Israel owes to uh, occupants in um, occupied territory. I mean, Israel's official position um, and, you know, other states like the United States also would take the position that a government does not owe duties extraterritorially under human rights law. It does not owe duties to territory that it may be occupying um, as part of an armed conflict. Um, the European Court of Human Rights has taken a different approach, obviously, and said, for example, the UK owes human rights obligations in, say, Basra province, part of Iraq that it was the occupying power in. Um, again, Turkey owes human rights obligations in respect of northern Cyprus, which, again, is a prolonged occupation. Um, but then it all comes down to, in some sense, the kind of mechanisms you have at your disposal um, to be able to enforce these human rights obligations. So. Obviously, you can't bring claims as a Palestinian in the European Court of Human Rights because Israel's not a party. But at the same time, um, Palestinian groups and NGOs do bring claims in the um, Israeli courts um, saying that Israel is in breach of its obligations as occupying power. And Israeli courts do hear these claims, um, and there have been an, a string of them. Um, your assessment of those, that case law, I guess, may depends a little bit on your perspective. I think... Um, the court tries to find legal obligations that do bind Israel and often the Israeli state does accept it owes certain minimal obligations to the inhabitants as part of the conduct of hostilities but it obviously tries to avoid the more burdensome obligations on Israel as an occupying power for example in Gaza um, so it's this still this sort of limited kind of recourse I guess in terms of the legal mechanisms that you can use a lot of our audience is probably wondering, you know, what is the role of the International Court of Justice, of the Human Rights Committee in, in all of this? If, you know, going through national courts is the only way of accepting a claim to responsibility to provide for citizens and non-citizens alike, what role do these larger international institutions really play and what power do they wield? Um, look, I think um, <clears throat> the situation in Israel-Palestine is... Um, uh, pretty unique in certain in certain respects. Um, so um, I hear um, Odette talking about international law and responsibilities within the context of human rights, international law. But here we have a state, the state of Israel, that is operating in bio, in total violation of international law and has a selective views of certain elements of it when it suits its uh, political raison d'etre and its political project, which is a project of expanding uh, into the occupied um, uh, lands of, of uh, Palestine by confiscating land, by um, continuing to um, uh, export <laughs> settlers um, in those lands that have been confiscated, by operating an apartheid system within the same occupied territories for settlers and for the native populations. Um, so, in a way, <clears throat> we have a situation where you have, at the same time, a state that describes itself as a democracy or a liberal democracy, which is, to some extent, operating as such for its own Jewish citizens, 
but who is also an apartheid state towards the majority of the population, that is the Arab population, uh, or the um, Palestinian. Um, so I think that using the language of international law is useful, but in a way we should be careful not to really minimize the paradoxical and uh, multiple realities that are um, uh, ongoing in Palestine, Israel. And I wanted to add that um, there is a debate among Palestinians about whether, and, and also among scholars of human rights of Palestine and in Palestine, about the um, uh, the relevance of these tools, the uh, of course the <laughs> the extent to which they have been beneficial or not, but also the political implications of recurring to them. So I would say that Palestinian human rights organizations do actually, as, as Odette was mentioning, uh, keep consistently. Um, um, applying, trying to apply international law to the case of Israel-Palestine. But at the same time, they are aware of the risks of normalizing uh, Israel as an occupying power, as if Israel was actually really interested in these kind of um, instruments, which, which of course um, it isn't, because Israel is an apartheid state and it operates as an apartheid state. So it operates in violation. And as a matter of fact, um, um, the problem is a political one. Um, so um, it's a political, uh, it, it, it needs a political solution. And of course, the in international law is an instrument. But when, when you, over decades, you realize that international law is uh, instrumentally used uh, in certain occasions. And as many other kind of uh, what we would say, you know, Donald Trump yesterday has um, made an incredibly hallucinatory speech where he says he states that uh, moving the embassy of um, uh, the US from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem is an act of peace. I mean, if these words have any meaning at all um, shared, then, you know, how do we understand um, these kind of utterances? You know, what do they mean? What does, is it, is he making fun of the whole world? Is he uh, hallucinated as some, as some, some of us would, uh, would argue? Is it, uh, is it that these words don't have any more any any um, any actual um, um, content aside from? Uh, is it that they are used instrumentally to obfuscate the reality on the ground? Um, so obviously, I think I mean I mentioned peace here, but I think that international law stands in the same kind of context that it's used selectively. It is still for the Palestinians uh, very important to symbolically. Um, make the most um, of whatever is available to them in terms of uh, human rights law, international law. But at the same time, I want to kind of undermine that um, there is a sense in which there is an awareness that uh, these tools uh, cannot, don't, don't because uh, we are in, in a political context of an occupation, ongoing occupation, they, which has happened in violation of the international law and it has happened and it continues to happen in violation. Um, there is at least also a lot of uh, cynicism and uh, fear of normalizing Israel as a democratic state, which is which is not. Odette, do you have a reaction to that? No, I, I mean, I would agree that um, 
it, you know, the situation of, of the occupied Palestinian territories is striking in that the Human Rights Committee can consistently say Israel is in breach of various obligations. The International Court of Justice has said that, you know, the construction of the wall, the confiscation of lands is clearly contrary to international law and has called on the international community, in fact, the Security Council and bodies within the UN to sort of not recognise this position um, and not cooperate with it. But then you come back to political realities. And this is the, the classic conundrum for <laughs> international lawyers. In the end, we're still beholden to politics. And so if Israel has friends in the UN Security Council, you're not going to get the kind of action or sanction against Israel that you might get against um, like Libya or someone who at particular points in time didn't find enough friends in the Security Council. So uh, this is a difficulty. Um, and there is, I think, that natural tension between trying to hold Israel to certain standards that practically are very hard to enforce against it. Um, and at the same time, you can see um, Palestine, though, also wanting to use to some extent these international standards and instruments because it also helps its claim of statehood, for example, on the international stage. So um, the fact that um, Palestine has joined various human rights treaties and is now um, acceded to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court is also part of a broader bid to cement its status as a state uh, in the international community. Um, so it, it, it's stuck in a way. It has to, it's stuck with a system of rules that it has to play by, but that can be abused or um, subject to a lack of enforcement because of the political realities on the ground. Yeah, I totally agree. And I would actually add that um, <clears throat> as a specificity, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned that this is also um, kind of a, a natural contradiction within the field of international law slash politics. But I would say that the specificity of Palestine-Israel case is that uh, the Palestinian Authority exists as a semi-sovereign entity, but it's not a state. And, and that means that, again, that paradox is multiplied multiple times within the context of the Palestinian Authority because it has to open, it, it is request, um, it is uh, somehow um, seen as a state when it is convenient, like in policing the Palestinian population for the Israelis, in maintaining the security levels uh, for the Israelis, in um, um, you know these kind of coercive um, elements of the of statehood and sovereignty, but it has got no sovereignty at all in what concerns borders, in what concerns tans tax collections, in what concerns human rights. Um, in what concerns uh, reciprocity. So <clears throat> uh, so we are operating in a system that is completely uh, exceptional in the context of nation-state um, configurations, <laughs> because you have an entity that is at, at one at the same time, a colonized entity, a semi-sovereign entity, and um, a, a nation-building or nation-state building um, process at, at one at the same time. Um, and I think it needs to be reiterated as much as possible that uh, ultimately what we have here is not a state, is not uh, a democratic a state on the one hand or a democratic state on the other hand. It is an occupation. Uh, it is a settler colonial project. Mm -hmm. And for um, over these decades, um, as much as um, the use of international law and human rights has served certain purposes, like moving the wall of apartheid of 10 meters um, away from one village or the other, at the end of the day, it has continued to uh, cover 
somehow for the actual reality that is. This is a settler colonial project, there is an occupation, and people have a right to liberate uh, or to fight for their freedom in, in any possible way. Uh, and the BDS, which is one of the other topics you wanted to talk about, is the most um, interesting, um, non-violent, civil society-led strategy that has uh, actually been um, uh, devised in the last um, 10 years. Thank you so much, both of you, for those uh, thoughts and insights. I want to bring in our panelists a little bit more. So, Jida, I know you have some some thoughts on this. No, so the last very insightful conversation covered some some of the questions that I was planning to ask on the ICC and what the prospects of Palestinian statehood are. But sticking for a bit on um, Trump and the sort of polit- politics, politics of international law, I was reading a very interesting article this morning itself, which said that Trump is going to release his you know, national security strategy. But the interesting part is that from whatever has been leaked regarding the national security strategy, it seems like a fairly sensible document and does carry on from a lot of his predecessors. But the interesting part about Trump is that a lot of the stuff that he says and is actually the stuff he says, of course, is more widely publicized, is what actually gets taken by other states to be actual legal slash strategic positions on international law. His tweets, where do they stand on international law? So that's something that is also very relevant in the present context of him giving that fairly um, interesting speech saying that um, the US embassy is moving from Tel Aviv to to Jerusalem. So I just wanted to ask um, both our panelists on what exactly are the implications of that? Because there has been a fair bit of uh, 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 writing about um, the fact that maybe the fact that he moved this embassy doesn't really change anything because the situation was so bad anyway. But of course, it is definitely uh, possibly a wrongful, shameful, maybe, and possibly legal act as well. So in terms of what was happening in status quo, how much does this declaration by Donald Trump actually change things? How, how should our listeners sort of look at this particular speech and this particular move? And if you could contextualize the move for our listeners who might not, like, or for some of our panelists or myself who doesn't understand the full weight, um, of w- what it, what specifically does it mean to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, for example? From a legal perspective, um, uh, Israel's attempted annexation of East Jerusalem, um, treating Jerusalem as this united and whole capital of Israel, um, does constitute um, an unlawful annexation of territory. Um, and that's been recognised by the in the past by the UN Security Council and by the International Court of Justice. So, in that sense, um, to sort of take territory by force is considered a breach of international law. Um, in fact, probably a breach of one of the the most uh, sacred or what we sort of call use Kogan's norms of international law, such that there's a burden, in fact, on other states not to recognise that situation. Mm-hmm. So, insofar as Trump's move is considered a recognition by the United States of Israel's right to a unified and whole Jerusalem as its capital, that would clearly run contrary um, to international law and the United States may well be in breach of um, its obligations in that regard. But again, um, how far international law might get us in terms of condemning this action is sort of one thing when you're talking about people with power and veto, for example, on the UN Security Council. I think you you touched upon a very interesting um, element in this um, incredible move that Trump has operated in the last few days, because 
Uh, one thing is to say that uh, this, in a way, comes as a final act of a series of violations that Odette was mentioning. I mean, J Jerusalem was occupied in 19 East Jerusalem was occupied in 1967. Um, the settlements that have been built around Jerusalem have further uh, annexed parts of Palestinian land to uh, Israel. Um, and uh, they have been normalized as neighborhoods. They're not even called anymore settlements. Um, Malia Dumim, the big ones, and others, for example, French Hills, Sagot, there are many of these. Um, the wall has been built to, in, in, in a way, incorporate these settlements within the municipal borders of Jerusalem so that, uh, as, as a kind of de facto uh, annexation um, policy. Um, so yes, in a way, it's true that the move of the embassy to Jerusalem, if we see this um, um, policy that has been a consistent policy of occupying Jerusalem, taking as much land as possible around Jerusalem, uh, stripping the residents of their Palestinian identity, Palestinian rights, Palestinian heritage, um, actually physically obliging them to move away for, from their ancestral homes um, by depriving them of services, of, um, of schooling, of education, of everyday needs. Um, so yes, the, the embassy move comes as a natural, not surprising kind of um, move. But this, I mean, there is a nuance here that uh, the symbolic implication of this is immense because the symbolic and political implication, because it means that the United States is not interested anymore in even providing the facade of being a broker or a peace broker. Is not interested anymore in thinking that there is a two-state solution based on international law, where East Jerusalem is clearly inscribed in as the capital of the, uh, you know, in, in, in as a divided state with Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, um, as the Palestinian capital and West Jerusalem as the Israeli capital. So, it has tremendous political and symbolic implications. Um, it basically means we are not interested to operate anymore in the framework of international law, which until now was the facade that all American governments somehow had. You know, nobody has ever said international law is dead. We don't care. We operate. We we operate through uh, facts on the ground. Since we have occupied Jerusalem, we have taken the land. We have confiscated more land in the recent years than the natural consequences that we also moved the embassy. This was never. Uh, somehow achieved before because the facade of international law, the facade that the US is a peace broker was kept on. Then you never know how these, um, or actually we started to see how these move um, have multiplying effects. I mean, the Malaysian army today <laughs> issued a statement that they're ready to fight for, their, for Palestine, that they're ready to do their share. So you don't know what the actual symbolic multiplying effect of saying Jerusalem is Jerusalem, which is a, a city that it, it is not only a, 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 you know, a city that Palestinians have inhabited for centuries and Jewish and Christians. So it's not only a local issue, it becomes a, an international issue for the wider Islamic population, the wider Arab, uh, Arabic, well, the wider Christian populations. I mean, the Pope has expressed his concerns, he, huge concerns about this move. Um, and in a way, it ultimately redignifies the fights of Palestinians for, for their own land. And, and we've seen this in the last few days. I mean, demonstrations all over the world for Palestine, from London to 
Indonesia to Malaysia to uh, Rabat to all over the place. And um, so in a way it has re-focused um, Palestine as a crucial issue in the Middle East and beyond. And it has uh, made clear what has been clear to all of us in the past decades that the US has never been an impartial broker, but it has had, of course, a huge uh, role in um, making Israel uh, a state that uh, enjoys impunity. Uh, and, uh, and, and now it has just concluded this um, long-term trajectory of um, sponsoring this uh, state and its violations of rights and human rights in, in the region. We've talked a lot in this episode so far about the fact that there is a kind of a tension or a disjuncture between, for example, international law as a set of ideas or rulings which can theoretically adjudicate a situation and then what actually happens on the ground. And that actually international law is a set of instruments which might affect the situation in certain ways, but they don't decide it definitively. Um, You referred to it as a a facade in your last answer. Um, I think you can have a very similar set of conversations about human rights, both as law, but also as kind of a set of languages and a set of ideals that have quite specific historical and political associations. You referenced earlier that there are debates in Palestine about how best to utilize kind of international organizations, the language of law, those kinds of things in pursuit of liberation. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit more specifically with regard to the kind of lived experiences in Palestine and how the language of rights is or isn't utilized or seen as valuable on the ground there. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I work on refugees. My, my, my work in the past uh, seven years has been about uh, refugees, refugees' imaginaries of rights, uh, especially, of course, but not exclusively in, uh, in Palestine. So I worked in, J- in Jordan, in Lebanon, across refugee camps and uh, non-refugee camps and uh, in, in the West Bank as well. I couldn't go to Gaza. Um, but at the same time, there is a huge um, deal of very important scholarship. For example, my colleague at SOAS in the Department of Anthropology, Laurie Allen, who has written extensively about, and she's published um, a very important book on the use of human rights and the fallacies of human rights discourse uh, within the, in her specific case, it was the West Bank that she's worked on. Um, so I, I'd, ra- I'd like to talk a little bit maybe about my own uh, research uh, on, on this um, because I think there are more competent people to talk about uh, the other aspects that you mentioned. Um, so, f- for refugees, for example, the, the first of all, let me let me be very clear here. Um, for a wider audience, I would say that whenever you go to Palestine or to many other post-colonial contexts, Palestine is not a post-colonial context, but it has some features of post-coloniality. And you mentioned human rights; people laugh. Um, because the human rights uh, discourse has become, um, first of all, a um, in the context of the prolification of NGOs uh, in Palestine, which in a way substitute for the lack of a st- of, on a, of a real state of resources. Um, so there is a, an industry and, and, and really a, a huge amount of, uh, of NGO and human rights organizations operating on the ground, we, who, which have created a public discourse about rights, about uh, humanity even, I would say, uh, which is very often uh, imposed from above, which very often doesn't engage with the local um, understanding and 
of what the priorities are, which very often is short-sighted or intermittent or not uh, consistent, which very often reproposes its own uh, aims and goals, that is, the perpetuation of its existence rather than the, uh, the actual resolution of the problems that people face every day. But also, and most importantly, it depoliticizes the issue of Palestinian rights. And why I'm saying this is that human rights has become, and why I'm saying that people always laugh cynically at you, it has become the other way of talking about Palestine that is not political. Um, it has become the introduction into the Palestinian uh, context of resources, of, of aid, of humanitarian or, you know, intervention, which in a way responds to a logic of feeling sorry for the people. Uh, but the plight of the people is not a plight that, that comes from famine or that comes from drought. It is political, you know, there is an occupation, it's a political issue. So human rights has also become, in a way, the um, the discourse that allows you to forget the political dimension of um, of the Palestinian um, predicament. So, um, what happens to refugees? Refugees, as you all uh, know, um, have been, um, the refugee problem has been created from 1948 when the State of Israel was created and more than 800,000 Palestinians then, at the time, were expelled or fled in fear as their villages were being destroyed and um, and today we are in a situation where there are, according to the UN, UN um, agency that um, deals with refugees, uh, more or less five million people who have a right to uh, identify themselves as refugees and who have also, as a result, the right to return. Um, of course, over these seven decades, um, and for some people less because in 67 there were more refugees made and these are they are not considered refugees for international law. They are considered mainly internally displaced for reasons that maybe that we'll want to talk about. But um, so there are a few millions of people who have now um, uh, who have become refugees, who have a right to, to return, and who have, however, who have been abandoned by uh, the negotiating table, who whose destiny and uh, and right to. Um, to not only return but to enjoy human rights wherever they are has been curtailed immensely. So, and I'm talking here, for example, especially of the 300,000 Palestinians who are refugees in Lebanon, who don't enjoy any sort of right, who are banned from more than 70 professions, who are only holder of travel permits or identification documents. In some cases, even ridiculous documents like identification documents for those who don't hold identification <laughs> documents. So there, there is a sort of an ironic, uh, I mean, if one wanted to look at things from very close um, language there that is being used. But what's happening to these people since the Oslo Accords in, in the early 90s, it, is, it has become increasingly clear that the refugee question has been dismissed by both the Palestinian Authority and, of course, uh, clearly from the very beginning by the Israeli government. So what's happening here? There are millions of people who have lived lives suspended in limbos, temporary lives in refugee camps, generation after a generation, whose whole aim was to return to their homeland, who are now beginning to think in different terms, who are now beginning to think that our right to self-determination encompasses our right of return and our right to stay. 
And they're beginning also to kind of introduce a challenge to the international uh, law kind of design that suggests that if you return, if you are, if you ha if you uphold the right of return, you you then have no right to settle or to to become a citizen of the country you, in which you reside. When you become a citizen, then you lose your right to uh, to return to your original country. And this is being really questioned by refugees because they realize that these 70 years of dispossession of living in limbo, of living temporary lives, of living in camps. And when I talk about camps, I talk about, yes, camps that have become cities where there are some wealthy people, but also camps that up until now look like really temporary situations with zinc roofs, with no sewage, with no... Um, with three shifts for education in, 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 in schools and stuff like that. So, um, so the idea that you can be a Palestinian national and you have a right of return today in the refugee political culture, in the refugees' imaginaries of rights, doesn't anymore stand in an, in an antithetical um, position with respect to also a right to stay, a right to enjoy human rights, to have rights to... Um, to dignified lives, to full personhoods, and so on and so on. And I think this is really quite avant-gardistic because it means to dismiss the uh, kind of Westphalian, although in the Middle East there are different sets of issues when it comes to the nation state, but the, the kind of Westphalian citizenship-based notion that you are a national of a country where you reside and in, in, in that respect you enjoy rights. Here we are talking about a new imaginary of um, the crosses the borders that are very blurred and, ve and and very kind of precarious anyway and imposed uh, of people who say we, we want to self-determine ourselves wherever we are and we still have a right to return. Katrina, I have a question though because um, I know that sort of Lebanon's treatment of the, the 48 refugees is um, you know very poor but in some respects distinct then from the way Jordan for example has given um, Palestinian refugees living in Jordan, greater rights is my understanding. Um, how much, uh, uh, to some extent, I think uh, Lebanon um, would try to say that the reason it doesn't uh, integrate these people into its own system is because it's saying, well, we're still you know, yeah. fighting for their right to return, right? They don't want to be Lebanese, they want to return to Palestine one day. So again, perhaps an example of, you know, the language of the law being insufficient in this regard and it allowing cover also for states who now uh, you know house and should be pro providing relief to these refugees to basically say for 70 years you have to live in makeshift camp camps and you have second generation refugees born in these areas who still have you know limited rights to work and education and so forth um, but sort of mapping that onto the broader political debate well of course you don't want to be a citizen of our country because it's all about the right of return but as you said Absolutely. this has fallen off the political agenda um uh, especially yeah. after oslo and so uh, no one seems to be talking about the right of return well but but what the refugees are precisely saying is that they don't buy into this notion that first of all what who is a lebanese citizen uh, which kind of rights does a lebanese citizen have i mean lebanon is a sectarian society and political system where rights are very much dependent on the sect you belong to or the wealth you have, uh, even if you are a foreigner. I mean, a Saudi citizen has more rights than a Lebanese inhabitant of Islam, uh, insofar as Beirut is concerned, which is being bought by international cartels of Gulf money. And uh, so, I mean, there is a question about what is a citizen in these countries. 
But there's also a, an imaginary here that goes beyond precisely that consensus that either you are a citizen of one country or of another. There is a sense in which, in fact, human rights are repoliticized and given the meaning they originally had, which, ha which is to say, you are entitled to rights wherever you are, no matter which borders and boundaries uh, uh, are, have, have been built around you uh, by virtue of being human. So there is this sense of repoliticizing the nexus between politics and humanity that is being put forward by these claims that we want to return, but we also want the right to stay. Mm -hmm. This doesn't mean that we are betraying, betraying the right of return. On the contrary, but we are also exposing the fallacies of this logic, which in the Middle East is in a way uh, even more um, um, problematic because the citizenship is such a precarious <laughs> um, space, you know. Um, and yes, in Jordan, you're right that Palestinian um, refugees have had rights uh, of citizenship, but this was not because Jordan was very generous with refugees. It was because Jordan had aspirations on Palestinian land up until the 1980s, really. And so the Palestinians who, <coughs> who went to Jordan were Jordanian citizens because the West Bank was um, under the um, administration of Jordan until Israel occupied the West Bank. And so... Uh, this was, in a, in a way, the, the, the least of two evils. What do you do with this? How do you manage these hundreds of thousands of people who have, um, who have been given citizenship because we had aspirations, semi-colonial aspiration on, on, on the land? Um, and then up till today, Jordan is trying to come to terms with, you know, how do we limit, the, for, in their perspective, the, 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 um, the problem <laughs> by getting rid of the majority of people we could, in fact, uh, since Jordan has renounced its aspirations to the West Bank with the 1988 declaration of disengagement from the West Bank, it has reproposed a new narrative, which I think comes very much from the fallacies of the nation state discourse, which is performed in these ways that says, oh, well, why don't you go back to Palestine, which is your state? You have a state now. Why don't you go back there? And many, many people, I mean, the numbers are not actually publicized and there is not much research because in these countries it's not easy to uh, to get to know the exact dimension of certain phenomena but many people have been stripped from their citizenship and passports you just you know you just go to an office the, and you're asked you know how many times have you been to Palestine recently and many people have been living transnational in, in so far as this border can be considered a national border, but lies between the West Bank and Jordan because they have properties, friendship, families across, and they are told to go back to their state. So the way in which the nation state is performed or used to exclude rather than to give rights to people is, is extraordinary, even in that context. I want to turn a little bit to uh, international efforts towards solidarity. We've critiqued and kind of unpacked some of the language that is used, the, the assumption of the nation state as a, as a solid, durable ca container, for example, um, human rights itself as a useful vehicle for political change um, or as a, a, as a facade, as a, as a shroud for deeper political machinations. Um, and specifically to this point of human rights language being used to depoliticize, how useful have grassroots international efforts like uh, the boycott, uh, divestment sanctions or BDS campaign been um, to advancing uh, solidarity internationally? And 
I think more to the point, how has the language of rights, even apart from the language of human rights, like as a general international discourse, but the language of making claims been used uh, outside of the Palestinian context uh, in reference to it? Um, and I guess the question I'm asking is, is this a claim that is not a claim to human rights? Is it a claim to liberation? And are those two things compatible? What is really interesting in the last few day, um, years is the internationalization of the Palestine question and the ways in which not only Palestinian activists um, and also scholars uh, of Palestine are kind of waving the linkages between settler colonialism in Palestine mm-hmm. and, for example, in other parts of the world, for example, uh, in, 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 in the United States of America or elsewhere, how the same military complex or system of power and control and violence and coercion that has been implemented in Israel is materially, ideologically, uh, financially connected and uh, reproduced and reproducer of the same systems of mechanism of power and, and coercion and control and violence in, 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 in other parts of the world. How the resistance at the um, uh, pipeline in the North Dakota was very much framed as an anti-colonial rather than nationalist resistance in the same way in Palestine and in 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 in, in the US or uh, as a last example the um, Ferguson or you know the, the black lives matter so in a way I think there is a universalization which is very much inscribed in the disc- in, in a political dis- um, heritage of the human right discourse that that emphasizes that there are systems of power and domination that are uh, very uh, pernicious, very connected, very um, important to understand and grasp in their complexity, in their interconnection, that are reproduced everywhere, that are very often um, um, not only reproduced as as, as examples, but um, uh, organized by the same kind of subjects around the world and uh, which give birth to a universal desire to resist and to react to the same conditions and predicaments on the ground. As part of the BDS movement, how much of it is citizen-led in the sense of, you know, not buying things, you know, produced in occupied territories and so forth? And how, and is Israel's concern that that consumer-led movement will have deleterious effects? Or is it a concern that that will translate into then state level sanction or boycott? So, because you mentioned some, you know, states in America going the reverse way, but yeah. you know, at, at previous points in history, it was in Massachusetts. Other states have tried to put up, you know, and, and the EU looks at not allowing products that are produced in the West Bank, for example, the non-Palestinian products. So, I, th- I think in Palestine, the, the the reality, the everyday reality, is very complex and messy because. Um, you know, in, in many ways, uh, it's really difficult to boycott Israeli um, goods because you don't have the same access to import-export that any other um, society in, in the world has, although it is possible, but it is really difficult, um, as it is difficult for people who don't have many opportunities to work to avoid working in, in Israeli settlements. Or So the everyday is messed, I would say, as really as, as a word that I would um, qualify as, as an interesting sociological category that, I mean, there is messiness going on. Um, it's not as neat. You cannot operate uh, coherently in neat ways. Uh, but um, I think at the same time, 
um, so there is so the, the BDS is very strong. Um, this doesn't mean that in, in the West Bank there is no resistance or non-violent resistance. Every day, there are people doing things, resisting, um, contesting the path of the wall, um, going to courts. Every day, really incredible um, amount of creative. Um, the hunger strikes, for example, that were hardly reported in the West. I mean. The hunger strikes are one of the most humane examples of nonviolent resistance for self-determination. Um, and in a way, that they are a form of boycott. But definitely, Israel is very scared about the symbolic and political repercussion of being singled out finally as a, as a, as, as, as a country that has to be accountable and, and has, that which impunity has to stop. So when the EU says we cannot tolerate any more um, the import of Israeli settlement goods, that really drives them crazy because it has a political message that means your settlement uh, policy is illegal. We don't, uh, we, are, we are taking steps towards um, um, making sure that you understand that this is not anymore possible. But what is extraordinary is the citizenship led movement, for example, in other parts of the world, as well as in these parts of the world with trade unions, churches, companies, individuals, all kinds of civil society and, and, and non-civil society movements that are, you know, building up the uh, strength of the movement. And law firms as well, a recent example being uh, a lawyer in Arizona who was asked after several years of contracting with Arizona State to promise not to boycott goods and services coming out of coming out of Israel. And of course, the interesting part here is that there's a clear violation of the First Amendment in which you have a right to political expression, but the state since 2016 is asking you to promise that, that you will not boycott Israel. And so like these movements are, are happening everywhere. And he's he's now moved forward with a lawsuit against Arizona State. And there are several examples of other law firms who are subject to the same law and who are also resisting. And so it's interesting to see how this plays, plays out internationally. So to wrap up what's been a fascinating conversation. I want to leave a sort of food for thought question here. Are we as the international community taking comfort in the existence of semiotic discourse and optimistic language without considering how this is only extending the stalemate, not just in Palestine, but also in other zones of extreme deprivation or conflict? I mean, I think the point was made somewhere near the outset that um, the language of rights, especially I think from its legal perspective, um, only gets you so far um, because rights claims often only work against some duty bearer, right? So this is then complicated by the question of statelessness and, and statehood and rights as a citizen, for example. So the citizen has rights against the state, but if you're not a citizen and you're not a state, who do you bring your rights claim against? And then it's also a question of institutions to enforce those rights. So I'd certainly say from a being a lawyer from a, a more legal perspective, um, human rights as a, as a legal discourse only gets you so far without the additional trappings that are needed for um, enforcement. Um, and beyond that, there I think there always is a risk that um, the language of rights can give a sort of a level of comfort mm -hmm. that if you can stake claims that people will listen. But I think we come back to this problem of politics and we need a political solution um, to basically an ongoing occupation. Um, and without that, 
you're not going to you know, settle the question of who owes these rights and to whom and for what purposes and how can I claim or advance those rights. Yeah, yeah I totally agree with Odette and I, I would add that um, in a way the um, my, my uh, hope is that the Palestine question becomes um, a lens through which to understand these pernicious effects on a wider scale uh, of the limitations of international law in the context of occupation, of the limitations of the human rights discourse in a context of an ongoing political oppression of an entire native population. And so to allow people to engage critically with these tools also in other contexts, and so that Palestine can become a paradigm rather than simply a site of conflict not to simplify the site of conflict itself, of course. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like our audience to walk away from this conversation with? I suppose just to put a plug in for international law. (laughs) 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 You know, I think all international lawyers ultimately um, have an aspirational goal. Um, And so, but we also have to be practical in understanding the limitations of, of its implementation enforcement and also you know, itself, it's not a neutral concept. You know, there are, you know, a lot of um, third world approaches to international law which demonstrate the way in which various institutions can entrench um, power structures, particularly Western power structures. And um, so we do have to be careful. But at the same time, I think uh, sometimes sort of standards and rules are important and they may not get us very far, but they can be quite symbolic. So, you know, for something like the International Court of Justice to at least be able to say, you know, settlements are illegal. Um, Maybe there's not enough being done to actualize that and react to it, but you have the statement and the Security Council can then refer to that uh, as a statement. Um, And we can then take a position on, say, the recognition of Jerusalem as the capital. I mean, and I mean, it's not to overestimate the power of that kind of language, um, but I think it, it is important to be able to have standards that maybe help in sort of broader social movements to um, recognise, um, you know, what's actually happening on the ground or as part of the Palestinian plight and the role of Israel and how different people in the world can latch on maybe to at least a sort of preliminary legal hook to say, um, you know, what does the law say about this situation? And with that, we are all out of time. Thank you so much to Dr. Rubasali and Odette Murray for joining us on this episode of the podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe on iTunes, search for Declarations, the Human Rights Podcast, or find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash declarationspod. You can also follow us on Twitter at our Twitter handle at declarationspod and on Facebook and facebook.com slash declarationspodcast.